Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Two features of the Homeland Security Department's cybersecurity program known as Einstein are going the way of the VCR, the iPod, and the teletype. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency will put the two Einstein 3A services out to pasture sometime in the coming weeks. Federal News Network's executive editor, Jason Miller, has details about these changes. He joins me now. And Jason, review for us E3A. What is it? What services did it provide and soon won't? This goes back to 2004 when DHS, before CISA even ex- existed, launched the Einstein program. Now, E3A is the third set of services under E3 under the Einstein program. CISA, you know, basically what E3A does is help agencies detect malicious traffic and take proactive measures to prevent it. It uses tools really developed by the Defense Department, by the intelligence community. It uses classified indicators of compromise, all this data that they can bring into it. And they go, okay, we understand what's happening in our network and where the threats are coming from. Tom, DHS has been rolling out E3 capabilities since 2013. So a lot of these are 10 years old. And in the cybersecurity world, that's like saying, Tom, how's your Betamax doing? Are you still watching all those tapes? And the 2023 FISMA report to Congress actually says 87 agencies were using E3 capabilities in 2021. And that actually dropped to 79 in 2022. So fewer agencies are using E3A. Right. And is that the reason CISA is ending it? And what will they replace it with? What's their plan here? Well, like VCRs that we used to all have, like iPods that we all used to have and the teletype back before our time, Tom, E3A was good for its time. Before your time, Before anyway. my time. <laughs> the teletype. You, you remember the teletype. I unfortunately do. But E3A has been basically overtaken by new tools, new capabilities, and basically it's just not needed any longer. And to CISA's credit, they're going to turn it off on December 22nd. Now, specifically, there are two tools that are going away. The first is email filtering capabilities. The second is domain name service sinkholing capabilities. Real quick, DNN sinkholing protects the against the use of domain name server as a means to establish communications, to compromise hosts, to distribute malware. It's redirecting traffic that matches known cyber threat indicators and prevents the connection of those malicious hosts. Now, DNS protection is a key cybersecurity thing. We've heard about that for years. There must be another way of getting at it. Absolutely, and that's that's what's not going away, those services. But DHS is now providing that as a shared service through a, if you will, a commercial capability. Email filtering, very similar. That protects against malicious file attachments, embedded links, in email content. Now, in an email to agencies which Federal News Network obtained, CISA wrote the reason for ending these services mainly due to the fact that over the past year, nearly all civilian agencies have migrated to that shared service, the Protective DNS Resolution Service, which is a commercial capability that is much better. Uh, CISA says actually to migrate to their Protective DNS, they've had more than 80 migrations already. And for those agencies that haven't, it's a very easy way to execute 60 to 90 minutes. For email filtering, a lot of those services are now provided through right. often. 365 through through commercial cloud providers and agencies who are still running on-premise email services not everyone has migrated their email to the cloud they do offer CISA offers a few things to think about ensure your capabilities are configured properly enable the log collection refer to the tick trusted internet connection cloud use case in securing email as a service and consider other security capabilities in the meantime 
Again, CISA says they've been closely evaluating the performance and benefits of email filtering services. And again, in this email, they say basically they've identified a lot of challenges and the value of email filtering just isn't there anymore and the cost benefits are too high. I spoke with Ross Nodorf. He's the executive director of the Alliance for Digital Innovation and a former OMB cybersecurity branch chief. And he says actually that move to the cloud, the commercial email services really is driving a lot of what is forcing CISA to turn off those services. The commercial capabilities have become as good that was had some of the government secrets off on them, right? So I think we've now gotten to a point where a whole bunch of circumstances have led us to a place where people are migrating and moving to the cloud. They are moving to TIC 3.0 architectures. They are using commercial capabilities that are as good and in some cases probably even better. You're, so you have this price tag of what was it years ago, probably $30 billion roughly, and they are taking that money and repurposing it towards shared services that are frankly better. Ross Nodorf, the executive director of the Alliance for Digital Innovation. So Einstein is getting a haircut. I guess we'll call it Ein. What else is going away of it, or will the rest of it keep rolling along here? Einstein 1 and Einstein 2, those services that are date back to 2004, 2008 timeframe, they are not going away, at least right now. Uh, Einstein 1, which monitors flow of network traffic, transiting from both to and from civilian agencies. They really do analyze network flows and gives CISA information about potential malicious, malicious activity. That stays in place. Einstein 2, which also identifies a potentially uh, malicious or harmful computer network activity, uh, it's, it's basically an intrusion detection service, service. That also is not going away. Both of those are still going to be routed through the trusted internet connection services. I spoke with Grant Schneider, the former federal chief information security officer and now senior director of cyber services at Venable. And he says E3A was never really a good fit for civilian agencies as it was for DOD and the IC. So he was updating and redesigning E3A has been a long time in coming. The challenges that we ran into early on, or I think that the, the program ran into, is that when you look at DOD, DOD's got 10 internet access points. Um, so you've got 10 boundaries where you can put a whole suite lot of equipment and defensive stuff, and you get to inspect most everything coming and going from the network. Um, when you look at the federal civilian agencies, there isn't really a .gov, right? I've always said, we talk about the .gov network. Well, there's not a, a .gov network. There really is a .mil network on the DOD side. And so every agency has multiple connections to the internet, and you then had to get E3A in front of all of those. Again, Grant Schneider, the former federal CISO and now a senior director of cyber services at Venable. And this decision then to turn off these capabilities, I guess they're kind of throwing in the towel for things that are more agile and more up-to-date, provided by the private sector where the agency's going. What does this say about cybersecurity in general, do you think? First of all, we have to give CISA a lot of credit. This is actually a good thing that they're turning off these services. This is a recognition that the world is changing. They have better capabilities, that agencies can really you know, lean on these commercial capabilities in different ways. At the same time, the, the continuous diagnostics and monitoring program, the CDM program, is fulfilling a lot of these challenges because they brought in these tools to give agencies the shared services that CIS is offering. So, again, I just want to re- emphasize how important this is for CISA taking these actions. You know, Tom, we always hear how government never turns anything off. Well, here's a good example. But I think more broadly than that, and I think this is best said uh, from ADI's Ross Nodorf, there isn't this bright line between commercial and government services as there once was. A lot of cases, solutions that were being provided, regardless of whether or not they are conceived of and developed in part by the government, have transitioned or migrated to commercial providers in a lot of cases, right? So you've got 
people like CrowdStrike and Crowd or and Cloudflare and some of the other ones who are who are offering white label solutions to the government that they provide a shared services. And I think that that's great, right? I think that we need to consider across the, the the stack, right? Whether it's network security, whether it's data security and you know XDR capabilities, whether it's all all of the above, whatever the shared services are that this is conceiving of that needs to be put in place for departments and agencies need to be viewed at as a partnership between the public sector and commercial, right? Commercial tools and and, and capabilities are going to continue to underpin how the government delivers security. ADI's Ross Nodorf talking about the the idea that commercial and, and government services are really coming closer together. We're seeing that through other capabilities like zero trust, and we're seeing it through other things as Agencies are leaning more on the private sector. I think that's where where this is going. And the few agencies that are still using these services about to be switched off, they're getting warnings and they will understand what they have to do to not be left in the lurch when they do get shut off. Absolutely. And I think this is why CISA is really pressing agencies, hey, December 22nd is coming. You know, Tom, it's only nine days away. So really make a plan, know about it. Uh, What I've heard from my my contacts throughout the agency is that this is not going to be a surprise to most CIOs, most CISOs. But just in case, they really are trying to get the word out more broadly to say, hey, this is important. And I think a lot of uh, this is actually a lot of good thing, again, for agencies to get better capabilities. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at How do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. And also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to 
enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down, so I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program. 
that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions. And that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion. And then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision and it didn't go as I had hoped and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know in my mind didn't know what they were talking about and so um, in reflection on that I realize and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions I realize that was a mistake that it actually is really important to listen especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people and even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including Um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So 
one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one size fits all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one size fits all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.